I'm Janice Adams, and welcome to Believe It or Not, the third season of The Janice Adams Show here on WJFF. I am delighted to be back and to be launching this this, uh, third season with this special edition for the Pledge Break. Uh, fall 2018, and also for the pledge break in the context of what's at stake for the station, what's at stake for having a voice, what's at stake for making our voices and our ideas and thoughts matter in this run-up to election 2018. So there's a lot to talk about, a lot at stake. And in this special edition, um, Jason and I are here together talking about a very extraordinary experience that we had going on location to upstate New York uh, and visiting the Susan B. Anthony home in Rochester. And I just can't think of a better way to start this season than with um, especially, to be honest, in the wake of Kavanaugh, with the woman who was arrested for, quote, voting as a woman. That was the charge leveled against her. Susan B. Anthony, the woman who really did put her life and everything she had on the line for the right of women, the right of everyone to vote at a time when the mythology of freedom was even higher on the mythic scale than it is right now. So as we start today, uh, today's segment, um, before we do, Jason? Yes. Let's give that number. Okay, we want people to call 845-482-4141. Call now and support of the community radio station right here in uh, Sullivan County, New York, that brings you the Janice Adams Show. It's a phenomenal thing that we're able to have on our schedule here and uh, reaching both sides of the river, the foothills of the Catskills and northeastern Pennsylvania, all the way down into the city and from coast to coast, wherever you're listening now, this is where this originates from. So support the radio station that helps make it happen at 845-482-4141. Janice, you're bringing back some memories. I haven't heard the audio that we're going to hear today since you and I were there, and I think since I kind of packaged up the audio once we got back. It's been a while now, so I'm already remembering. I I was right there on that spot where she was arrested for voting in her own foyer basically right inside of her own uh, front door is where she was taken away from. So this is pretty exciting for you and I. This was the culmination of a couple days journey that took us to many amazing places. And we heard many amazing stories and you listening, if you're a dedicated listener, you've probably heard some of those other places we visited Petersboro, New York, uh, the grave site of Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet Tubman's house. So uh, we've taken you to those places, and now here we are. We're going to go to Susan B. Anthony as well. In the voting season, voting uh, is an issue that runs through this whole tour and talk that we had. So call us now at 845-482-4141 for this uh, very timely and historic programming. Yes, yes. 845-482-4141, the number here at WJFF. And to begin on this pledge special, we are going to go to take you to the Susan B. Anthony home 
With the executive director speaking, Deborah L. Hughes, president and CEO of The Home. And as we go to the recording, remember the number and give us a call at 845-482-4141. We're here at the Susan B. Anthony home, and just tell us why we're here. What's the significance of this place? This is the house that Susan B. Anthony moved into with her mother and sister in 1866, so shortly after the Civil War. And for the next 40 years, this was her home base. Even though she traveled around the country and internationally, teaching and and agitating for freedom, uh, this was what she considered the the place that was home. And it's also the place where she was arrested for voting in 1872. It's the place where she breathed her last breath in 1906. And it's the place where they wrote The History of Woman Suffrage, several volumes, and where her biography was written by Ida Houston Harper with Susan B. Anthony standing over Ida Houston Harper's shoulder saying the things she wanted to have included. So this is a place where a great reformer found her grounding and her connection. Uh, It's the way she connected with the energy of her family and the world, but it's also a place where she lived out in this neighborhood, her experience of being the person she thought we should all be in the community and in the world. What are her dates exactly? She was born in 1820, so slavery was still illegal uh, in New York State and in the country at that point. She died in 1906, so she spanned some of the greatest changes in our society, from being an agricultural society to being an industrial society, from a time when a woman was considered the property of her father or her husband to a time when women were beginning to uh, get education and um, participate in many of the professions. On this tour, we have been focusing on the Underground Railroad and also making note of the connection um, between the Underground Railroad, the the freedom fight of African Americans, and the freedom fight of women, and also looking at, at other groups, Native Americans. We've been asking questions, LGBT issues. We've been asking questions about this conversation about freedom that we're having with this series of shows. I notice when you say she's born 1820, then she is a direct contemporary of um, Harriet Tubman, uh, with Harriet Tubman surviving her by a few years. But they're both born, well, I guess we absolutely know Susan B. Anthony was born in 1820, and we know that Harriet Tubman was born sometime in 1820. What was the relationship between the two? Susan B. Anthony and Harriet Tubman knew each other. Uh, They often crossed paths at different points in time. Harriet Tubman, as you know, ended the latter years of her life here in central New York in the Finger Lakes area. And we have a letter from Susan B. Anthony when she was living out on the farm, not at this house, but about a mile to the west of where we are now. Her next-door neighbor was a woman named Rhoda DeGarmo, and the DeGarmos were a well-documented Underground Railroad site. And in one of her letters, Susan B. Anthony writes, fitted out a friend of Harriet Tubman's today. So we assume that at that point, uh, Susan was helping someone along the way, along the journey. Uh, Most people are not aware that Susan B. Anthony had a tremendous passion for the abolition of slavery, and it was what she was putting her heart and soul into in the 1850s. She was very passionate about that. What is her epiphany in terms of being a woman of that time, 1820, and moving forward, you know, antebellum period into the Civil War period and all of that? What is the epiphany for her? Susan Bethany was a Quaker, 
and Quakers had that belief that every person, man or woman, had the light of the universe inside of them and had a vocation, something that they should fulfill. And for that reason, we see a lot of Quaker women in the 19th century who are given more opportunities. They actually thought it was better for a Quaker woman to stay single than to marry outside of meeting. And so Quakers had an obligation to provide women who might stay single with a a way to make a living. And so Susan B. Anthony and many other uh, Quaker women were trained to be educators. The only job that you could hold as a woman then was to be a teacher. And her teaching experience really opened her eyes on a lot of levels. At that point, you could only teach if you were single. If you got married, you had to give up the job. Part of the job would be that you would go and live often with a trustee or someone else who was responsible for the school. So not only would you teach the children, but you would be housekeeper and nurse and uh, support system for that person for the the pleasure of having your position. And at that time, Susan B. Anthony would have been one of the first to remind us that a woman was making about a quarter for every dollar that a man made, despite her success or how well she was doing her job of teaching. Factually, I'm trying to remember the detail. Was she at the 1840 convention in England? She was not at the 1848 convention. At at that point, she had been engaged in temperance. She felt that was an issue of social justice, that alcohol addiction was such a huge problem in the 19th century, and it was a problem for women and children. Because if you were married to someone who was a drunk, you couldn't get divorced, you couldn't leave, you couldn't open a bank account, and the children that you had born were his. And so it was a social justice issue to address that social problem. Mm -hmm. And then she became completely dedicated to the abolition of slavery. And when her, uh, when they were having the convention in uh, Seneca Falls, Susan B. Anthony was not there. And actually, they convened that convention again here in Rochester. And her mother and father and sister went, and Susan was out at the farm. And uh, we have a letter from her again in the 1850s where she's writing to a cousin saying, should, what should I do? Should I put on pantaloons and take up the women's rights movement? Uh, she got radicalized, actually, in the temperance movement because she went to a convention and the Daughters of Temperance would meet with the Sons of Temperance, but they had separate uh, units. And she rose because she wanted to make a statement about social reform, and the gentleman who was presiding said the women were there to listen and learn, but not to be heard from. And that was an epiphany for her. That was the moment that she decided if she wanted to have any role in social reform, she had to be able to have the power of a voice and a vote. And so for her, the, the vote was not the end all. It was the means to be able to participate in society and change society for the better. To vote was not the end in all. It was to participate in society and make society better. Words for our time, for sure. In this run-up to election 2018, when so much is at stake, and indeed so much is at stake here for the station, too, as we ask for and uh, your support for WJFF. I'm here with Jason Dole. We are talking about the past because we are very concerned about the future. That's right. And uh, we uh, don't want to be concerned about (laughs) our future here. That's why we're asking for you to help us out at 845-482-4141. Call now to support WJFF and pledge online. If you're online at WJFFradio.org, you can also do it through the mobile app. You just click on the first uh, story on the app. It'll take you right to where you can make your contribution. And, uh, yeah, the what what else is election time than a time when we think about the future? It's probably the day 
that we most think about the future outside of New Year's Day. You know, as people, uh, uh, the, you're looking. You're, it's it's an act of hope at any time for anyone, whatever your uh, affiliation may be. You want to see something happen. You want to exact some change. You want to participate in that process. And all of those feelings and everything are behind uh, are brought up when you see the people have those I voted stickers on but now for me the an added thing is i'll think of this trip that we took i think of rochester new york and even even harriet tubman's grave there was i voted stickers there in you know? auburn and in rochester we yes. went to the grave sites of uh harriet tubman in auburn and the um frederick douglas grave site in in rochester and we saw these stickers and buttons on top of the tombstones and they said i voted and obviously you know i mean and the lincoln pennies remember the lincoln pennies yes that's right yes but those i voted stickers and the fact that so many lives have been not just devoted but seized for the right to vote in this country seized for the lack of the right to vote in this country and the the Payment for voting has been extraordinary. For a country that speaks in terms of freedom and the revolution and bringing freedom and the Constitution, the violations of human rights in this country, the violations of the very Constitution that we we prize in this country, and that violation taking place around the subject of voting again and again and again, and it's even coming front and center again in this election as we deal with voter suppression. And what what was it that a woman like Susan B. Anthony gives her life for? It is to stop the ultimate voter suppression of saying, you don't even have the right at all. We don't have to consider you at all. And what does she get arrested for? She gets arrested for voting as a woman. That is the crime. That's why we are out here having these conversations right now. So we never forget what the price has been. And what the price still is. There are still people uh, dedicating their lives and making sure that uh, this uh, democratic uh, republic operates in a democratic manner as it's supposed to in some way in a lot of ways uh that's disheartening to see people still have to do that work and in some ways i find it heartening because the what's the alternative the alternative is 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 thinking that everything is as good as we just say it is if it's in the book say well this is how it works and then you just assume that it works that way no you always freedom isn't free and you have to work for the democracy, and people are still doing that work. So, again, another yes. phenomenal episode of the Janice Adams Show that's connecting where we've come from to where we are right now to where we're going. Thank you, Jason. And and it was just extraordinary that we got to do this trip together. I think that's why it's so wonderful we're getting to share it with the audience to, to, together. And that audience that we're sharing it with, with together, um, we would very much appreciate your support so that we can continue to do other shows, other trips like this. This one, we were really privileged to have underwritten the travel and accommodations by I Love New York, which was an extraordinary uh, thing right there that we were able to get that kind of um, support 
from the state uh, to be able to bring the story to people all across the country of the fact that these things happened right here in New York. I mean, there are so many stories that can be told about what didn't go right in this country. But this story is the trajectory of what went right and how that came to be. So here we are. 845-482-4141. I Love New York uh, did help us out with the show, but they uh, haven't paid for the station and everything else that we've needed to bring it to you and the transmitter and all that. 845-482-4141 or online at WJFFradio.org. Call now to support WJFF. In this segment that we're about to come back to, we are speaking once again, continuing our conversation with Deborah Hughes, and she is the president and CEO of the Susan B. Anthony Home in Rochester, New York. So from that unfortunate man who made the mistake of crossing swords with Susan B. Anthony at that moment, what was the next thing she did after that? Very shortly after that, she had defined the the three important words, organize, educate, and agitate. And that's what she believed had to happen first, that you you had to get people together, you had to connect them, you had to educate them about what the issues were, and then you had to agitate them. Because a lot of great thinkers would understand there was a problem, but they wouldn't do anything about it. And so that strategy was her strategy for all of her social reforms. And she and Frederick Douglass often would write to each other and talk about getting up in agitation. And that was really to take the social justice to the level where not only did you hear about the wrong that was happening, but you were so appalled by what you were hearing that you got engaged in making it change. Education, like that that word, was was that being used by other people before her? Was that a concept that was going around? By social reformers, yeah, that term, get up in agitation. Uh, and it really was get that. Up get up in agitation. agitation. Yes, there's a, we, it, we're going to have a play that will um, premiere here in Rochester in October. It's a new play written by Matt Smart. And it's about the relationship between Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. And it's called The Agitators. What year are we talking about when she makes this transition? She's retiring from teaching before she's in her 30s. Uh, but when you think about Susan B. Anthony as a model for what we can do with our lives, she got arrested when she was 52, which was a ripe old age in the 19th century. Mm. And she gave her most famous speech of all, her failure is impossible speech when she was 86 years old. She is part of the temperance movement. And then she, does she ever marry? She never marries. Okay. Uh, so that's consistent with what you were telling us about uh, her Quaker tradition in terms of what a woman could be and that sometimes you mentioned it was better not to marry than to, I guess, have a bad marriage. Um, One of the things we've been looking at as we do this series, and we've been taping now for two days, um, is to understand it in the context of its time. So as she's dealing with other people and other thinkers in her time, and also in the context of ours, why we are still talking about this woman and need to talk about this woman and how it relates to the things that we're going through. So here she is. Um, she doesn't go, so she's not at the London meeting either that everybody talks about as being so pivotal. She's not at the 1848 meeting. And yet, at some point, she steps into herself. Actually, the, the, when she meets Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which was a, 
a, a whole relationship that would last the next 50 years. It's an anti-slavery society meeting that they connect. And when is that? Uh, that's in 1852. Okay. And where is that? Uh, they, they actually meet in Seneca Falls. They're introduced by Amelia Bloomis in 1851. Yeah, the, the convention, I believe, was in Syracuse, and they're on their way to, to an anti-slavery convention. Okay. Uh, and so they meet, and what do they decide to do? What do they talk about? That's interesting. There's a great quote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton meets her and talks about she has this amazing smile and dynamism. And, of course, most of the photos, all of the photos and pictures of Susan B. Anthony, she's looking rather stern. And yet here are the reporters who, throughout her lifetime, whether they like her or not, talk about her charisma, her dynamism, and her, her, her winning smile and her sense of humor. So they, they paint a different picture than what we see in the images. Susan B. Anthony was uh, totally believing in social reform. That was her passion. She met Frederick Douglass through her father. And on Sunday afternoons at the family farm out next to the DeGarmos, you would find Frederick Douglass and the family, William Lloyd Garrison. John Brown was a good friend of the families. In fact, two of Susan B. Anthony's brothers rode with John Brown in Kansas uh, when they were trying to push for Kansas to be a, a free state. And so uh, much, her, her whole family fabric was about trying to create a society that was better than what we had. One of the speeches that I find most connects us today is a speech that she gave when there was a meeting of the Women's Loyalty League. It was during the time of the Civil War, and they had called a national convention of women and to, to talk about how they were going to address this moment in time. And for Susan B. Anthony... She felt that it was the moment to, to put an end to slavery. And for some of the other women gathered, it was about something else. It might have been about state rights. It might have been about uh, other other issues. And for her, that, that was not what this clarion call was all about. And some are saying, well, we want to go back to the country the way it was. And Susan B. Anthony gives a powerful speech where she says she she does not want to go back. She does not want that union and she actually describes, and she says, from the moment that the first person was put in shackles in Africa and brought to this country, we've been at war. And this is the time to end that war. And she says, I do not want a union that is a sham. I want a union that is truly a union. Thank you, Susan B. Anthony. 4141 WJFF Make your contribution right now during the Janice Adams Show here to WJFF, this community radio station that makes the Janice Adams Show possible. As you hear there, the, the history of people who dedicate their lives to making this a more perfect union and connecting that history to the people that are still doing that work today. That's so much a part of what the Janice Adams Show is and what Janice brings to us every week. If you appreciate that, call us now at 845-482-4141. Is that a decent enough way to describe what you do, Janice? Is that Thank accurate? Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. Okay, good. Um, I just want to make sure I got it right. That's, that's, <laughs> that's how I see it. That from the person who welcomed me to WJFF, uh, in what is now almost three years ago as we start our third season of right. the Janice Adams Show. I'm having a hard time believing that myself, but here we go. And um, yes, we, we work hard to make the show available to you, but you're the ones who make it possible for us to do this show. So we are here 
live in studio for this pledge break. Right, yeah, for during the pledge drive. And at the same time, we're also in Rochester, New York, in yes. Susan B. Anthony's very home. Yes, we are. Um, and we have been uh, speaking with the executive director who was kind of giving us a really wonderful background on, on the richness of this woman. And now we're going to hear from uh, um, Linda Lopata. She is the director of interpretation and visitor services at the museum, uh, at the house, which is now preserved as a museum. And let's just hear what she has to say, because she just has an uh, an entirely different view and, and uh, interpretation that is worth our hearing. Trails of troubles, rows of battles, paths of victory, we shall walk. The first women's rights convention is 1848 July in Seneca Falls. But there's another one here in August 2nd of 1848. So it's virtually the same convention, only slightly different. Um, At this convention, a woman actually presides. And I love that because at the first convention, I believe it was Frederick Douglass that convinced Elizabeth Cady Stanton, yes, indeed, you can stand up there and speak. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton does and finds her voice pretty quickly. And then at the Rochester Convention, it's proposed that a woman presides, and it's Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott that actually have to be convinced by a local Quaker woman, Amy Post, um, who we know harbored fugitives in great numbers, that said, I think we can do this too. Um, So you see in a very short period of time, if you have the opportunity to do something, you can succeed at it. and that's what I love about the story of Rochester. And also that um, that convention takes on a slightly different flavor. Um, they really address more of working class women's issues. Uh, you're probably not caring so much about the vote when you are trying to get food on the table for your children. And so out of that convention actually comes a promise to help support a seamstress union. The convention that takes pl- place here you say that it takes on a, on a different tone or a different, different purpose. Does C- Susan B. Anthony attend that convention? I'm afraid not. <laughs> she is not at that convention. But um, as Deborah pointed out, her, her father, Daniel, sister, Mary, and her mother as well. And they signed the Declaration of Sentiments at, at that meeting. So who is this woman who is now almost iconic with women's rights, but not part of those early efforts right literally in her backyard. Who is she? Well, that's a tough question. She's a lot of people like all of us that grows and gains confidence. Um, That's one of the things that I point out to the children when we do programs. Uh, How do you think that she felt when, as probably around age 10 or 12, the the teacher refused to teach the girls higher math, which was, of course, Susan's favorite subject? Um, And... And how do you think that she felt when she went to the Quaker school and the headmistress was on her about 
everything in this precocious child that was not mischievous, um, but felt like she couldn't do anything wrong. Um, and so you see her gain confidence as the years go on, and actually you see that in the changing relationship with Elizabeth Cady Stanton as well, um, which would you agree that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was more identified with the women's rights movement early on, um, and then it became more Susan B. Anthony? Yeah, there's a... Um I'm, I'll paraphrase, but a reporter later in her life said, it was, you've always been about the women's rights, and she says, in essence, no, I'm, I'm about the rights of all human beings, but if you can change the world for half the population, why not start there? And that is Susan B. Anthony speaking? That's Susan B. Anthony. Okay. You mentioned the changing relationship between Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Staten. From what to what? I'm going to let you handle that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, they have different social contexts. Um, Stanton is married. She has a lot of children. She uh, has a father who's a lawyer, so she comes from a certain position of privilege. She, though, is dedicated. She chooses to marry her husband, Henry, despite her father's complete protest. Henry is another reformer, and they say he's never going to make any money or do anything with his life. Uh, she at one point breaks off the engagement for that, and then in the end uh, marries him again and goes off to Europe to have a honeymoon. Uh, my personal opinion of, of Stanton, and I haven't studied that much about Stanton, but later in the 19th century, Stanton is still very concerned with uh, institutional isms. She's very concerned about patriarchy, particularly in the church. And when she gets to the point where she's publishing her woman's Bible, uh, it, it makes you blush today, her critique of patriarchy in the church, because some of it is so familiar. Uh, in terms of the power. For Susan B. Anthony, her, in her Quaker grounding, I don't think she ever gave the church that much authority. Uh, and Quakers don't. You know, the, the Quaker motto was that no authority but truth. Uh, and so Susan wasn't as interested in a, attacking a particular institution that didn't have authority for her. There is a point when Stanton's writing the Women's Bible, and they actually don't want to recognize her at a women's convention. And Susan B. Anthony stands up for her longtime friend and says, we're not, we're not going to start doing that. We're gonna, not going to start throwing women out who have opinions that we agree with or disagree with. Let's, let's not let it come to that. Uh, I think Stanton is brilliant. She writes many of the arguments. Some people say she wrote the speeches for Susan B. Anthony. I don't think that's actually true. Uh, Anthony really spoke extemporaneously for years. But the arguments... She drew on Stanton's ability to find 10 different ways to take apart an argument and to put it into the debate. And she would, Susan B. Anthony would integrate that into her. And she was always relying on Stanton to, to create the next, the next argument, the That's next speech. That's the legal mind. The legal That's mind. the legal mind. Exactly. And sometimes it gets them into trouble. Because sometimes, like a debater, they'll take on an issue from an angle that we now regret. Um, in, in particular, some of, some of the arguments um, feed racism today. And so uh, it, it's like one of those things where you might argue that the biggest was the question about should the, uh, at following the, the uh, Civil War, should we pass the 15th Amendment uh, and grant black men who had been enslaved the right to vote, or should we push for universal suffrage? And Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton had been for universal suffrage, and now there was an opportunity for black men to get the right to vote, and Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison and others felt that opportunity must be seized, and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton saw it as a betrayal because the argument had always been 
that a woman couldn't get the right to vote because she had no experience, she had no education, she'd never owned property, she didn't know what it was to be a citizen. And so Stanton turned the argument around in ways I wish she hadn't to say, wait, now you're saying a man who's never owned property, who's never been able to have the right to have an education, who's never participated in citizenship because of the barriers that slavery allowed can now somehow be qualified to vote, but a woman still can't be qualified to vote. And so we were dealing with that reality of how really people in power played off two groups that were denied human rights against each other. It was the obvious divide and conquer. It was. And we see it getting played out today as well. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, in fact, I, I think notably I experienced it um, in the wake of the 2008 election and whether or not we were supposed to put our support to um, Hillary Clinton in that election or to Barack Obama and the, that argument uh, came up again and um, it was something that a lot of African American women were, were being put through um, with a, a question that I've been asked all my life and it's a, a question I hate well are you a woman or are you a black person you know and it's so ridiculous so um, and that's supposed to define which side you're on and but it just what it really does is define whose service we are all in because the very question puts you in the service of someone who doesn't want either group to have what is essentially do human rights well i think it's interesting right now as we uh when we will post something from Susan B. Anthony's words that really challenge what's going on today, almost immediately we'll get people who will respond to try to do that same divide and conquer, uh, whether that's on social media or wherever. They want to silence her voice. What, is, what are some of the kinds of responses, if, if you can think of one or two specific ones, so we understand? Sure. Uh, here in Rochester, at the election in November, uh, we had people who came, 10,000 people came to her grave. And it was delightful to have the BBC call us and say what's going on there in Rochester. Uh, a local reporter filmed 14 hours on Facebook and had 23 million people see it. And the response from some people was, well, Susan B. Anthony was a racist. And it was a quote from her, although usually they leave one word out. And it was from that time period following the Civil War when Susan B. Anthony said, when William Lloyd Garrison and Tilton came to her and said, we, the war's over, now we want to get the right to vote for black men, we think we can achieve this, and we want you to write petitions. And she said, before the war it was that we were all about universal suffrage, and now we're not going to be a unified front anymore. And the, the paraphrased line was that she said, I would, I would sooner cut off my right arm then give the vote to a black man before a woman. Often black man is left out, um, and the context of that is I would sooner cut off my right arm than give the vote to any group rather than every person. Um, another quote from her that, that doesn't get lifted up is uh, when the response is, well, this is the Negro's hour, and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton both said, do you think that there are no Negro women? And 
So it's a, it's a misunderstanding. Um, but it's an easy one to misunderstand if it's taken out of context. Misunderstandings or manipulations? Well, it's interesting because um, both Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton retracted those statements within six months and, and said that the argument was misunderstood and that that wasn't what they meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but we keep going back to that. So here's something that they were saying in the 1860s that from uh, then to the rest of their life, they said was not what they meant and they regretted it, but we pull it out. That's why I use the term manipulation. Rose of a battle, path of victory, we shall walk. Trails of trouble, paths of victory, we have walked. Indeed, we have in this journey towards human rights and equity here in the United States, and a story. Um, to which Susan B. Anthony devoted her life, and that's why we are doing this special pledge edition of the Janice Adams Show in this lead-up to election uh, 2018, featuring the life and times and work of Susan B. Anthony, and we have the real extraordinary privilege of having been able to do this from her home in upstate New York, in Rochester, New York. Uh, the person you had just heard is is Linda Lopata, who is the Director of Interpretive Services. And as we go back to the tape now, we are actually going to take you inside the home on a tour of the house with the Executive Director, Deborah Hughes. But first... But first, we'd like you to call and support us. This is a pleasure. I'm just pausing for a brief moment here in another great edition of the Janice Adams Show. We are here in your community radio station, Radio Catskill, and we can't be here without you in the community doing your part as well. Make a contribution of any amount now at wjffradio.org or call. We're waiting to hear from you at 845-482-4141. This is an extraordinary opportunity that we have. We are now entering the Susan B. Anthony home. In touring the house, we've been here in her library, and I see this handbag that you have here. What's the story of the handbag? There's a a quote from Susan B. Anthony from early on. She says, every woman needs a purse of her own. And she's actually speaking about the fact that a married woman couldn't have a bank account. So this is not a fashion statement. This is a statement about women's independence. And so uh, the alligator purse has become a metaphor for many things. It actually was what they call a club bag. When you look at it, it looks kind of like a doctor's satchel. And she didn't carry makeup or anything in it, cosmetics. Uh, She carried her speeches. She carried transcripts of her trial. So it was, and and it was known to go and go underneath the the, uh, seat with her on the train and it, it became this. This was Susan B. Anthony, the red shawl. At one point, she showed up at one train station, and the press were there to meet her, and she was wearing a gray shawl, and they asked her to go change because they couldn't write the article about Susan B. Anthony without her red shawl. Whose bedroom are we in now? This room had a number of different functions. It actually first was Susan B. Anthony's mother's room, Lucy, who really bought the house first, and then Mary later bought it from her mother, providing an annuity for, Mar- for Lucy to have her retirement. The room went through a lot of transitions. Actually, we sit here, you see a wall in front of us. There used to be a door that came through this wall, 
And the window that you see there would have lit the stairs that we came up. But by the 1890s, the house was full of women doing the work. And this was the headquarters of the National American Woman Suffrage Association. And they didn't have enough room, so they raised the roof. And they added the third floor. And at that point, the stairs that go up to the third floor went where the hallway used to be, and the doorway moved over here to this corner. And then this room at some times, Mary was supporting her sister who's doing the movement, and she had borders. At sometimes the borders would take up the whole first floor, and then this would be the front parlor for the, the family and the people who were living here. At other times, it was a guest room, and that's we call it a guest chamber now. So we have our Madison Mavens. We know that all of the women that are on the walls stayed here overnight more than once, uh, but we don't know if they stayed in this room. Uh, we have a reproduction of a quilt that Susan B. Anthony and her sister made as a wedding gift for another sister. And so this space over the 46, 40 years, excuse me, from 1866 to 1906, had lots of functions. I want to ask you about that coat. It, it's just gorgeous. It's the kind of coat that even though we're saying Susan B. Anthony would not have necessarily been concerned with a fashion statement, that coat was and is a fashion statement. Tell us about it. There's interesting things about Susan B. Anthony in fashion. There's a, a, a woman, Kate Gleason, who was the first woman inducted into the American Society of Engineers. And Susan B. Anthony was a mentor to Kate and at one point suggested that Kate change how she dressed because Kate was pretty drab in the, the lab. And Kate became so well-known for her dressing that as she went to Europe as a single woman to sell the machines that were being produced at Gleason Works, often the way the door was opened to her was that people were fascinated to see this woman and her dress, never knowing that they would encounter a brilliant engineer who could tell them more about the machinery they were about to buy than they knew themselves. But this cloak is this beautiful velvet cloak with the amazing... Um, uh, embroidery and trim to it. And you see, we have a picture of Susan B. Anthony wearing that cloak. Um, that's a pretty well-known photograph. It probably was a gift to her. Most of her nicer things were gifts that other people gave to her. Uh, that was true in the house, too. Many of the nicer things were things people would send to the house for a, a, an anniversary. We don't usually have this cloak on exhibit. We're doing it this year in New York's centennial year so that people can get another sense of, of her the interesting thing about this cloak is that when Susan B. Anthony died, the cloak was willed to uh, a woman named Harriet Taylor Upton, who was the treasurer for the National American Women's Suffrage Association. A woman who, as a young woman, didn't think she wanted to go hear that radical Susan B. Anthony and all of her crazy ideas, but her father told her to go and listen. She then becomes treasurer. She has the offices in Warren, Ohio. She took the cloak home. So she had this cloak from 1906 until 1945. And when we were establishing the memorial, which was our first name, the Susan B. Anthony Memorial, she said the cloak should come back to the house. She actually died, uh, and it was willed back to the collection here at the house. And so it, it represents also a connection. Uh, here we had Harriet Taylor Upton, who is the bridge from those pioneers who never lived long enough to see suffrage to someone who lived into the new age and the new era. You mentioned that most of the her nicer clothes were given to her by someone else. What about the fabric in that gorgeous dress in her bedroom? Well, the fabric came from the Mormon women who were making silk from scratch, from mulberry trees that they imported 
to the silkworms that they brought in. They actually wove the silk, dyed the silk, and created some of the finest silk ever produced in this country is the Mormon silk from the 19th century. And these women gave a gift of five yards of this gorgeous fabric to Susan B. Anthony for her 80th birthday to thank her for helping the women of Utah to get the right to vote as the second territory that awarded women that right. We call these our Madison Mavens. There were so many women who came to visit in the house, and we just picked some. Oh. Um, and uh, Ida Houston Harper actually lived here while she was writing the biograph biography with Susan B. Anthony's uh, consultation up on the third floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, Anna Howard Shaw visited regularly, and she's one of those who inherited the house, traveled with Susan B. Anthony, and followed her as president. Uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett came first to Rochester speaking about lynching, and Susan B. Anthony heard her at Corinthian Hall and said, you must come stay at my home. And so it was then Ida B. Wells' practice to stay here. Uh, there's a, two stories that come from Ida B. Wells' biography, autobiography, that are, are, are interesting about this space. Uh, the first was at one point, um, here's Ida B. Wells in one of the bedrooms, and there are stenographers. Susan B. Anthony was keeping three full-time stenographers busy writing correspondence. And she's going out for the day, and so she says, it, could you use one of the stenographers if I have them? And, and Ida B. Wells says, oh, that would be great. Susan goes out, does something. She comes back, and here's Ida B. Wells Barnett writing. And she says, didn't the, the woman do the work for you that I'd asked? And, and Ida B. Wells said, no, she never came. And the, the, the woman was boarding here in the house. And Susan B. Anthony goes down the hall. And, and I, again, I'm going to paraphrase but, and use the words of the time. She says to the woman, didn't you do the work that I asked you to do for Miss Barnett? And the young woman says, you might serve a negress, but I won't. And Susan B. Anthony says, all are equal in my home. Get your bonnet and go. And she sends the woman out um, of the house. And uh, another story is years later, Barnett comes back. She's actually coming for the installation of a statue in honor of Frederick Douglass. And she's staying here again with Susan B. Anthony. And now she's married. And Susan B. Anthony, she notes that she, it seems like Susan B. Anthony can't say her married name. So I'm imagining, Ida B. Wells... Barnett. And she says, I, I had to ask her, do you have a problem with marriage? And Susan B. Anthony says, no, I have no problem with marriage. It's a wonderful institution when it's of love between two equals. But then she goes on to talk to Ida B. Wells Barnett about what she perceives to be Wells's gift and vocation to tell the story. And she sees that since Barnett has gotten married. She's not on the speaking circuit. She's not writing as much, and she's not continuing her work of exposing racism in the country. And so she says it, 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 it's gotten in the way. And she, but Susan B. Anthony actually did understand and sometimes felt you couldn't do two things. Um, it's one of the reasons she, she, at some points, gives for not getting married, that she had this other calling and this other work, um, and she felt she wanted to be dedicated to it. But, but, um, and the interesting thing is that Barnett reflects that she then went back and kind of renegotiated her understanding with her husband, and she gets back out doing her vocation and journalism. And for context, a sense of what things were really like for women at that time. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. She um, did some things like gave up custody of her daughter to her husband. Um, the yellow wallpaper is about a woman whose husband has determined that she's insane, and he puts her into a space where she goes quite un, uh, unsettled as she's isolated from community. And the reason that he isolates her is because she's not conforming to gender expectations of the time. 
Susan B. Anthony helped change those times. And in her final days? She's gone to Baltimore and she stands up. She's got fluid in her lungs. She knows she's 86. There's no antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And she names many of the women who've gone before her. She's one of the few still left of the early pioneers. And she says, there's so many that I could name. But with the cause in the hands of those such as these, and she points to those who are inheriting the work, failure is impossible. She was so sick that she all but collapsed. They put her on a train. They brought her home to Rochester. They had her downstairs. She couldn't even get her upstairs for three days. She has female nurses who have gotten their registration Mm -hmm. and training, one of whom says, I don't know anything about this suffragist cause that you're so involved with. And she says, just taking care of the bedside is all that required. Her physician is a woman, Dr. Marcina Riker, and the world is waiting to hear about Susan B. Anthony. And for several weeks, she's up and down, sick and, and better, she gets delirious. And finally, shortly after midnight on March 13th, 1906, the word comes that Susan B. Anthony has died. And at that point, Rochester has a horrific blizzard. And at the church that was Central Presbyterian, now it's Hochstein School of Music here, mm-hmm. same church where Frederick Douglass had, had his memorial service, 10,000 people stand in the snow and the blinding wind to pay their respects to Susan B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. And the honorary pallbearers mm-hmm. are women who've graduated from the University of Rochester. Yay! A visit to the Susan B. Anthony Museum and House in Rochester, New York, with the protectors of that legacy, Deborah Hughes and Linda Lapata of the museum. Uh, Heard on this week's show, the music, Nellie McKay, feminists don't have a sense of humor, otherwise known as Mother of Pearl, and Odetta singing Bob Dylan's Paths of Victory. Jason... Yeah. For the last two years, it's really been quite a time that we, we've had. We started with um, a show about race and about courage, a show asking questions, and it's really been quite a time. We, we began the show in the election of 2016. Yeah, uh, you came to the station that summer was one of those violent and bloody summers that we seem to keep having every mm-hmm. other year uh, with lots of racially uh, motivated violence. And uh, in some ways, it seems like that election never stopped. In some ways, it seems like the violence hasn't stopped. And uh, it's been great, again, to have you here to give us your perspective and the perspective of history as you've lived it and as you've explored it through the people that have lived it whose stories have come down to us. And that's what we just heard here today with the Susan B. Anthony Show. It was exquisite to be able to go to her home. I mean, you go to a lot of museums as a historian. I go through a lot of people's papers. But someone who you can really say had an impact on your life it's an entirely different thing when you stand as you say in the doorway where she was arrested arrested for voting because she was a woman i mean nothing even more complicated than that it sounds so ludicrous when you say it. arrested because a man with power somewhere further away heard about it Mm-hmm. And had to send, no, 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 we've got, the power's got to come down on that. Because, again, there was there's local people that knew. 
Yeah. But it was when the other powers that be found out that that's mm-hmm. when they came after. There's something about, you know, I have friends, like I'll, sometimes I'll get autographs from someone. I'll have like an autographed album or or a photo. And I have friends that say, well, I don't understand about autographs. And it's when you go to see a historic place, you see the things that the people had. It's not just, oh, my goodness, they were here and oh, my goodness, they touched this. But it's it helps cement in your mind what the story is. Uh, I One of the first things I asked you were heading in the show, are we going to get to hear about her purse? Because that's something, <laughs> now, having that visual, seeing it there in the case when we were there, yes. just helps to remember the whole idea, the quote, every woman should have her purse, and the depth of what that quote means. It exactly. was a statement of empowerment for those times. It, and it, still. it said that every woman needed to have a sense of independence. Yes. That's what it was about. It happened to have been an alligator purse. Um, there was also a just a gorgeous coat that I had admired uh, hanging in in the room, and they said they don't usually have it on exhibit. We we were fortunate enough to see it, but we saw it because of what it represented. It was a gift to her that she then passed on. I mean, we don't think of necessarily willing a coat to somebody. That too speaks to the, the yeah. time, even for among privileged people, but. Um, uh, that coat had been willed to a woman who was uh, kind of her secretary, and at a certain point, that woman then decided, when she heard that the muse- the house was being restored as a museum, she put it in her will that the coat would come back to the home. A woman like that seemed so remote. You know, mm-hmm. we talk in this piece about the 1848 convention. That's 170 years ago this yeah. this year. That sounds infinitely long ago. But here through this tangible aspect of a coat and also a dress that was hanging. And we found out that that dress had been made of fabric that had been sent to... Um, to Susan B. Anthony as a gift by women from Utah, of all places, who who had had this fabric done, and through Susan B. Anthony's work, they had formed a seamstress union. And that's why that fabric was there. So it's not just about a coat, not just about a handbag, not just about a, a bolt of fabric. It is about people's lives and the impact on their lives. And that's what this was about. Yeah, and it's not its not a cult of personality. It's not that, well, because that's mm. the Susan B. Anthony. When you're there and you see these things, you realize what it was that she did with her life, mm-hmm. what she did with her possessions. The, the whole idea of the house mm-hmm. is you start to see, as we heard there were uh, Charlotte uh, Perkins uh, Gilman, uh, the people that came through the door and stayed there. Yes. And so, and then things like the coat and the bag. So there's two sides to this. One is, it's not just that women should have that sense of independence, but you wear it in a noticeable way yes. out in public. And then, you know, people stick together. And they, they do what they can for each other. And the mm-hmm. gifts that mean the most to her are the gifts that she can give back. Exactly. And the gifts that she give mean so much to people because they are able to give them back. And they gave them to us. So speaking of giving gifts, 
Yes. This is where we're going to pause and ask you now to give the gift of uh, the community radio to the other folks in the community. You're listening now. You're listening to the Janice Adams show, listening to WJFF. Uh, it's on you to support this radio station and to give the gift that keeps us going and to give the gift to your fellow community members. You can do it by calling 845 845- 4-8-2-4-1-4-1. That number again is 845-482-4141 to make a financial contribution of any amount. You can also pledge online. Thank you for catching us all. All right. And until we catch you the next time, again, uh, before we wrap up the show, you still got that chance. Give us a call. Support WJFF. Janice, thank you so much for uh, coming out today. And thank you again for uh, taking us on this great trip, taking everybody listening with you. Yes. And it's exciting. We have a season three ahead of us. Yeah. What? Real quick. What do you what do you have on the horizon? Well, uh very soon on the horizon, there's an extraordinary film called Capturing the Flag that we'll be featuring with the um, filmmaker and Demare and the actual attorney and co-producer uh, who has been working on this issue of voter suppression with a group of friends where they travel the country as observers um, to protect all of our rights, rights that women like Susan B. Anthony, men like uh, Frederick Douglass fought for us all to have. So that's coming up. Um, we've got so much. I mean, from not all in the past, a lot in the future, and I mean, a, a lot in the present, and we are actually looking forward to the future. That's great. Thank you so much. 